There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Tonight on The Readout. And we, in this moment in time right now, have to pinch ourselves because it was almost 250 years before a woman could stand at this desk, not just to give a prayer, but to get the gavel. Pennsylvania's new House Speaker Joanna McClinton, just one of a rapidly growing number of powerful women leaders in this country. But ironically, women now have less bodily autonomy than we've had in 50 years. Also tonight, major new developments in special counsel Jack Smith's investigation and why the lawyers who did Donald Trump's bidding have reason to be very nervous. And if he doesn't win a Grammy, it's rigged. Tonight, you will hear Donald Trump's new song recorded with a choir of prison inmates. No, I am not joking. And we begin tonight with the vital role of women in American history, something especially celebrated during Women's History Month, which started this week. It is pretty remarkable when you think about it, the gains women have made since the 19th Amendment was ratified in 1920, when women, but really white women, secured the right to vote. Of course, women of color and black women had to fight decades longer to secure that right until the Voting Rights Act passed in 1965. The long fight for political equality surges on, but the gains, even in recent years, are the stuff of legend. Former stenciled, forever stenciled in the history books that we, except in Florida, are allowed to read. We have Kamala Harris breaking a two-century barrier as the first woman vice president, as well as the first black and Asian American in this office. We also have four women currently serving as Supreme Court justices, including the first black woman, Katanji Brown Jackson. It's been 30 years since the year of the woman, when a record 47 women were elected to the House of Representatives. Women also won an additional four seats in the Senate. Those victories occurred after Senate confirmation hearings for Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas outraged many American women due to the allegations of sexual harassment against him. Sadly, he would not be the last Supreme Court justice accused of sexual violations of women. Hey there, Brett Kavanaugh. Leading us to the present day, when a Me Too movement arguably predated by Anita Hill in 1991 continues to shake predators to their core, even putting some very powerful perpetrators behind bars. Back to the political world. To date, 59 women have served in the United States Senate, with 25 serving right now. A record 12 women are in governor's mansions, several of them in states that elected women for the first time, and some who, unfortunately, are eradicating their fellow women's rights as we speak. Which brings us to the flip side of all this progress. Alongside these breakthroughs for women and girls, for the first time since the 1970s, women's lives have been completely upended, our rights eroding at alarming and grotesque speed. Women have less bodily autonomy now than in most of our lifetimes, and in some states, none at all. The forced birth movement landed with a vengeance, and it is horrifying to witness the reality of that American dystopia after Roe. 
We have draconian laws designed to punish rape and incest survivors and that criminalize women who seek abortion care. In Texas, a bill that allows any private citizen to sue anyone who aids or abets an abortion. In the United States in 2023, we have a Texas woman who said she carried a dead fetus for two weeks after her state's abortion ban. Another Texas woman has sent, was sent home from the hospital with instructions to return only if her blood filled a diaper more than once an hour. A woman was discharged from an ER in Ohio without treatment for her miscarriage, even though she'd been bleeding profusely for hours, filling the bottom of a bathtub and bleeding into her shoes. Let's just pause for a moment. These are people, perhaps someone you know, because miscarriages and complications are quite common. Many of these people are already suffering a loss, bleeding out, and in some cases, dying, being sent home and told to wait or to do their own research, terrified with their hands tied for a party that claims to be about freedom, to be defenders of babies and children. What we're seeing instead is a cruelty so profound that women and girls will certainly suffer untold harm and yes, even die. And it's not over. The abortion pill is now on the chopping block and not just in red states, nationwide. Its fate now is in the hands of a far-right Trump-appointed judge in Texas who is set to rule on a lawsuit that seeks to restrict access to a drug used to induce a medicated abortion. The drug is also used to treat miscarriages. Forced birth Republicans aren't just scaring doctors out of helping these women, but also corporations. Walgreens has just announced that it will not sell abortion pills in several states where abortion remains legal. The move comes after Republican attorneys general in 20 states sent Walgreens a letter saying the company could face legal consequences if it sold abortion medication in those states. Joining me now is Minnie Timaraju, president of NARAL Pro-Choice America, and Michelle Goldberg, columnist for The New York Times and an MSNBC contributor. And Minnie, I do want to start with you. I heard you earlier speaking with my friend Nicole that, you know, the thing that is, there's so much that's shocking here, but that a, a corporation like Walgreens would take proactive steps out of fear of legal recourse and actually uh, upset its own bottom line rather than fight for its own bottom line in terms of this abortion pill. If we're starting to see corporations fold and cave in to this forced birth movement, who, who lines up in defense of women? It's really troubling. And I think, you know, we have to have some pretty, pretty tough conversations with our friends at Walgreens who just recently committed to following other FDA guidance and releasing the abortion pill and distributing it in brick and mortar pharmacies. Um, there's a larger problem, I think, with corporate America, frankly, being intimidated by these GOP extremist lawmakers. And it's really important, I think, a couple of points. One, it's really important for uh, Democrats to call the question and call uh, call our corporate, their corporate allies and friends and say, what's going on? Why aren't you engaged in this fight? Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, in this Texas medication abortion case that would undermine FDA authority and really shake up the entire pharmaceutical industry, pharma did not file an amicus brief. And we're really wondering why. And so there's a lot of big questions for what corporate America can and should do in this moment. But we also have to pay attention to the fact that Republican lawmakers are going to extremes to intimidate the private sector. And it's working. It's they're flinching with everything from, you know, diversity initiatives in states like Texas and Florida. And now this. So we really have to ask, 
uh, I think shareholders have to really demand accountability and the American people have to really think about uh, what products and companies they support and what products they consume. Right. Because, you know, Michelle Goldberg, it's not even a close call. When you ask Americans, do you want abortion to be legal? The vast majority of Americans, even Republican women say, yes, of course, men and women, you know, men don't necessarily want to be liable for pregnancies that they didn't plan either. Most three quarters of two thirds of Americans agree that it actually should be legal. And yet you're seeing corporate America, rather than look at that majority, which is the majority of their customers, instead, they seem to be caving to the coercion. And so, you know, still giving money to candidates who are anti-choice, who are pro-forced birth, and still, you know, operating in ways when it comes to things like diversity and things like abortion that say, we're more afraid of this coercive minority than we are of the majority. And I want to give you just a a, a kind of example of the fact that even Republicans don't believe that coercion will, uh, will, will, will really work in the end. On the one hand, they're saying, we're ordering you all to have babies. We want to increase the American-born population. And let's just be clear, not of people who look like me, of people who look like you, Michelle, <laughs> all right? And we want to force that because kids don't, be, women don't want to do it. Here's their new tactic. We're like, okay, coercion's not working. How about this? Texas Republican, a Texas Republican wants to give tax breaks for having more kids, but only if you're in an opposite sex marriage. Families with a quartet of kids, meaning four kids, will get a 40% tax cut. Got 10 kids, no property taxes at all. With this bill, Texas will start saying to couples, get married, stay married, and be fruitful and multiply, says Representative Brian Slayton of Royce City, Texas. Michelle, this sounds straight out of The Handmaid's Tale. That's a verse from the Bible, be fruitful and multiply. What they're saying is whether it's through coercion or that we got to pay you, we want women back in the 19th century. Well, it's a carrot and a stick, right? And I think that we shouldn't be that surprised by corporate cowardice, right? Corporate America was never going to be a leader in the fight for social justice. At best, they can be at some points, you know, kind of beholden to public opinion and public pressure. But what we've seen recently is especially with Ron DeSantis in Florida, there's such greater Republican willingness, despite their um, ostensible devotion to the free market, you see such greater Republican willingness to use the power of the state to go after corporations. And corporations are timid and they're risk averse and we're seeing them buckle. I mean, speaking of the majority, we just saw in Kansas, they, you know, they had a referendum, an up and down referendum in a very conservative state. They made it very clear what the people of that state think about reproductive rights, but that hasn't stopped their attorney general from sending this letter threatening Walgreens and getting Walgreens to cave. Um, A final thing I would say is that, you know, the, the, this, bill that's been proposed in Texas, they have legislation a lot like this in Hungary. And something that I've written about in a number of different contexts is the degree to which the American right is taking their cues from Viktor Orban. I think this is another example of that. Well, I mean, you, if you want to go through with that, right. I mean, the governor of Florida, you want to talk about Victor Orbanism, making bloggers who write about him register so that he can have some sort of registry of whoever's writing the things about him. So I guess he can impose some sort of penalty if you write something he doesn't like, having fines for it. It's, it's all straight out of the fascist playbook and the Victor Orban playbook. And it is interesting, Minnie, that there is this sort of larger story that ties in things like replacement theory, these sort of obsessions with LGBTQ people, obsessions with trans people. If you actually do the bigger story, it all goes back to this demographic panic. 
you know, they, they, we have right now children who are essentially working in this country as indentured servants. We could easily solve that. If you did an immigration bill, you could get the parents. The parents might come here and maybe want to take those jobs. They don't want the parents. They want Americans to have more children and Americans don't want to. And so this, this sort of combination of coercion, we're going to force you to do it. And maybe we'll try to lull you into doing it to have 10 kids. What modern woman is trying to have 10 kids generally? I mean, maybe Amy Coney Barrett. I think she has close to that number. But most women don't want 10 kids. They're trying to force women back to the 19th century. So speaking of Amy Coney Barrett, this just reminds me of the domestic supply of infants comment she made yes. during the Dobbs oral arguments. And we have to remember, you make such a great point. The root cause of all of these fights, the fight for trans lives, the fight for, you know, diversity, education and black studies in Florida, the fight back for so many of the core issues we care about. It's rooted in a white supremacist movement. And it's so important to remember this is about this isn't about life. This isn't about protecting children. This is about a minority party. Let's be clear. They are the minority of this country exerting power and control out of a desperate play to retain what they can for in in this modern society. And that's why so many of the attacks are interconnected. You know, when I was on with Nicole earlier, we talked about uh, the nexus between January 6th insurrectionists the big lie, and the funding behind the extremist anti-choice organizations that have infiltrated the Supreme Court. So the very, very attacks on our democracy, they're all connected to this desperation of this white supremacist movement to exert power and control. And right now, uh, they're winning more than they're losing, and it's terrifying. It is terrifying. I mean, I think about Phyllis Schlafly, uh, Michelle, who herself was a powerful, independent woman traveling all over the country uh, doing advocacy. She certainly wasn't a shrinking violet staying home and baking cookies. But she set, went to war against the Equal Rights Amendment. She went to war against it and won and, and got it to not be ratified, saying that what she's defending is the real rights of women, the right to stay home and be a housewife and mother. No one has ever said you can't be a housewife and mother. What, what this right wing is saying is that we're going to set up legal barriers and a combination of carrots and sticks to make you be a housewife and mother, whether you want to or not. That is not freedom. It's, it's something, but it sure ain't an advocacy for freedom. Well, I mean, look, Phyllis Schlafly, like, you know, many kind of high profile Republican women have figured out how to have it all, which is to have a high profile career, um, high profile career praising the merits of staying at home so that you can enjoy both the social prestige of domesticity and the kind of political influence. Uh, that said, you know, we know from around the world that there are ways there's no, you're not going to con- convince modern women to have 10 kids, probably not to have four kids. You can do certain things. If you're worried about your birth rates declining, you're worried about an aging society. You can do certain things that Scandinavia has done, that France has done to nudge birth rates up a little so that women can have the number of children that they want to have. Because very frequently, women are not having as many children as they want to have because they can't afford good maternity care. They can't afford birth. They can't afford preschool. They can't afford childcare. Those are all the things that you could do if you really wanted to make it possible for American women to have more babies. But there's not, you know, despite some lip service to making birth free, you don't see nearly as much energy, if any energy, behind any of that as you do behind laws that are incredibly um, punitive. 
Instead of you see this grudging, okay, fine, we'll give you a little bit more Medicaid in places like Mississippi, where they have the highest maternal death rates in the country and the and the poorest people in the country. They're like, fine, they grudgingly give you a little bit of Medicaid. But yes, they don't want to pay living wages, pay people decent wages so they can afford to buy a home and raise a family. There are things you could do, but they would require, you know, maybe increasing rich folks' taxes. And they ain't going to ever do that. Uh, Minnie Tamaraju, thank you. Michelle Goldberg, thank you both very much. Up next thank on The you. Readout, the special counsel investigating attempts to overturn the 2020 election is reportedly trying to compel testimony from Trump's attorneys. Making attorneys get attorneys, what MAGA really stands for. Plus, Check out the turnout, or lack thereof, for Marjorie Taylor Greene and Don Jr.'s big appearance at CPAC today. And you know what else is empty? Republican attempts to own the libs with their Revenge and Retribution Committee. I will explain next. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. I know crimes. I can smell them. You don't have to smell this one. I can prove it to you 18 different ways. I can prove to you that he won. Remember that moment after the 2020 election? Well, Rudy, it turns out the special counsel, Jack Smith, may know a thing or two about crimes as well. As new reporting from The Washington Post late today says, Smith's probe into Donald Trump has begun honing in on the twice-impeached former president's circle of attorneys. The Post writes, federal prosecutors investigating efforts to overturn the 2020 election have asked witnesses extensive questions about the actions of Rudy Giuliani, including where he got his information about alleged fraud, what he did in the days around January 6th, 2021, and what he knew about the actions coming that day. People who have appeared in front of the grand jury say investigators looking into classified documents taken to Mar-a-Lago have sought to force testimony from another Trump lawyer, Evan Corcoran, by saying there is evidence that the former president used the attorney's legal services in furtherance of a crime. And prosecutors have repeatedly sought information on the actions of yet another Trump lawyer, Boris Epstein, in connection with both classified documents and Trump's false elector scheme. They have quizzed multiple Trump attorneys involved with the documents case, including Christina Bob, Alina Haba, and Jesse Benal, according to the people familiar with the investigation. All just another sign that the special counsel is, in fact, picking up the pace of its investigation, especially as the 2024 presidential election starts to take shape. And joining me now is Andrew Weissman, MSNBC legal analyst, former FBI general counsel, and former senior member of the Mueller probe. Andrew, it's always great to talk to you. I want to zero in on the second person I talked about, Evan Corcoran. Just reading this Washington Post piece, not, I'm a non-lawyer, I'm just coming, you know, my, my stipulation here, but he seems to be the person 
that seems to be in particular an interesting peril because he's the one who signed off on the attestation that Trump, with his lawyer's help, had given all the classified documents back. And that turned out to be so untrue that they had to do an FBI search. Is the fact that he's being questioned about this mean that he can't throw up attorney client privilege and say, well, whatever we talked about regarding the documents is privileged? So um, to remind people, there there are two lawyers who were involved in that attestation, at least two that we know of. Christina Bob actually signs the attestation, but she Mm -hmm. has said that she got her information and it was drafted by Mr. Corcoran. So he drafts it, but she signs it, which, by the way, Joy, I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know why on God's green earth didn't he sign it. Um, so right. can you say fall guy? I mean, it's basically <laughs> let's get her to sign it. So the issue for um, the uh, prosecutors is who gave that information to Mr. Corcoran? Um, so, you know, presumably at some point you get to Donald Trump. Um, and this is why lawyers can be so important in this investigation, whether it's the January 6th part or the Mar-a-Lago part, which is if you are asking your lawyers to commit a crime, um, right. like such as saying something that's not true to the government, that's a crime, making a false statement, obstructing the government. If you do that, lawyers then can be asked to testify. Normally, there's an attorney-client privilege. If you are my client, Joy, you and I can talk and nobody gets to know about it. But, you know, if you were to ask me or I were to ask you to commit a crime, all bets are yeah. off. I mean, obviously, that's a gross hypothetical. Um, <laughs> but that's what it, you know, happens here is that if Donald Trump was basically saying to Mr. Corcoran, just tell them X, and that X yeah. is false, meaning I returned yeah. everything, Jack Smith gets to say to Mr. Corcoran, where did he get that information from? And the courts are going to say, absolutely, he has to testify. So Jack Smith is following a very standard playbook here. Just to be clear, this is nothing unusual. It's nothing yeah. sort of outlandish or aggressive. It is the, it is exactly what you do. We did it in the Mueller investigation. Um, and you, he follows, you know, essentially you follow all the evidence as far as it could go. And if it takes you to the very top, you know, that's going to be a, a pretty much a goldmine because he will have a lawyer who gets to take the stand and say, the information that I got in this certification that we know is false, I got from my client, from the lawyer, Donald Trump. Yeah. So, that, client, yeah, right. so that's really devastating. Yep. I, it, and also, so, if I you can made that go clear. to... <laughs> No, you did. And I, I, it's too bad. you. It's, it's probably a good thing for Christina Bob that you can't go to jail for being stupid, because what lawyer signs something that they yes. don't know is true? Like, you're a lawyer. Like, that's actually supposed to be like lawyer 101. Like, they should teach that in like the first year of law school. Don't sign that. You don't know it's true. OK, let, let, let's go to January 6th, yeah. because this has been the, the one that you have said. And I think you've been really good about being like, this is the most difficult one. It's very complicated. Boris Epstein is involved in this one. You know, I I think right now about um, the attempts being made to talk about the weaponization of government, right, in this sham committee that's going on in the House. But the weaponization of government, to me, you can boil it down to what was happening at the DOJ when Trump was in charge, right? After his attorney general says, no, it's BS, there's nothing wrong with this election, they try to install a different 
attorney general so that he will say, oh, no, there's something wrong with this election. They have false electors they're trying to put forward. They're trying to use governmental offices and power to keep him in office. Like this seems to be it should be the biggest one. Um, and Boris Epstein is in the middle of that one. Can you explain why, despite what seems to be the, 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 the worst one, why that one is the most complicated? Yeah. So, by the way, I couldn't agree with you more. The the hypocrisy of having a committee that's looking at the what's supposed to be the, quote, current weaponization of DOJ. When we came from the Bill Barr DOJ, where, as you said, they were trying to put Jeff Clark in to do Donald Trump's bidding. Bill Barr tried to get rid of the uh, Roger Stone case, the Michael Flynn case. I mean, it, it's just unbelievable that, you know, this is basically saying black is white, white is black. Um, <laughs> yeah. So January 6th, you know, what I would say about that is it's not that it's so complicated. It's just bigger. Um, you know, we all sat through the January 6th committee hearings. It's not like this is rocket science. We can see what happened. It's bigger, though, because there are so many different strands of the conspiracy. It wasn't just what happened on January 6th. You have the fake electors. You have what happened to DOJ, which you referred to. You have the pressure on Mike Pence. So there are just all these different pieces to it, because it's not a conspiracy of just a few people and a small uh, time frame. So it's but the actual crime. I mean, is there anyone who is watching this who doesn't understand exactly what happened? So, but it is a question right. of putting all of that together, making sure you have all of the witnesses, and especially because Donald Trump doesn't use email, you want to make sure right. you have as many people with direct access to him who say, this is what he knew. This is what yeah. I told him. This is what he said. Um, because in court, that's what you need to deal with you know, these things, the rules of evidence, which is requires that kind of proof. Um, but, and you know, it, and it makes we just even- watched a double... So we just don't watch the double murder case and it was it was circumstantial evidence. And you watch that and you sit there and you look at the Mar-a-Lago case and you think, okay, one of these cases is actually (laughs) much easier. And that's the Mar-a-Lago case. It's wild. I I need you to come back, Andrew Weissman, because I do want to talk to you about this Dominion thing. I have so many questions about that because that one also seems like a slam dunkish thing. But I don't know because I'm not a lawyer and you are a great one. So thank you, Andrew Weissman. Much appreciated. Uh, Still ahead. Put on your dance. Thank you. Put on your dancing shoes, everybody. A group of inmates behind bars for their alleged roles in what we just talked about, the January 6th insurrection. Oh, they've teamed up with none other than an instigator in chief, Donald Trump, to drop a new track called Justice for All. No, I'm not making this up. I swear it's true. Stay with us. I'll explain. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. It's Monday night. It's Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. 
Y'all surely remember that iconic 2008 song from the Black Eyed Peas frontman, Will I Am, where he took a speech from then-candidate Barack Obama and created this cultural phenomenon. It actually won Will I Am a number of awards and appeared to help Obama's ascension to the White House. And mind you, Obama was not even involved in its production. It was criticized by conservatives. I mean, mainly because for so long, those on the right have wanted to be able to tap into the culture of this country and failed at it time and time again. Take, for instance, Ben Carson, who during his 2016 presidential run worked with rapper Aspiring Mogul (laughs) to try to recreate that Obama magic for himself. And support Ben Carson for our next president and be awesome. America became a great nation early on, not because it was flooded with politicians, but because it was flooded with people who understood the value of personal responsibility. It's, it's the flute for me and be awesome. Okay, well, we all witnessed how well that worked out for Ben. And uh, just last year, in his re-election campaign, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, oh yeah, he brought in the big guns, working with Leonard Skinner's Johnny Van Zandt to release this ditty. didn't try to rhyme something with Fauci. Is it, is it possible to be embarrassed on someone's behalf? Oh, anyway, I don't know about you, but I think Van Zandt should probably stick to sweet home Alabama. But of course, there is one person on the right, more than any other, that has yearned for acceptance from every aspect of our culture. And that would be none other than, you guessed it, Donald Trump. And yes, there have been a number of songs produced about him. He made a cameo in a 2013 music video for Azerbaijani Russian pop star Emin Agalarov. That name may sound familiar because it was Agalarov's publicist who claims to have arranged that infamous 2016 Trump Tower meeting between members of Trump's campaign and a Russian lawyer. But I digress. It seems today we are witnessing, for the first time, Trump collaborating on a song. And he had to go to a D.C. jail to find his backup singers. The song called Justice for All. Features Trump reciting the Pledge of Allegiance while, get this, a group of about 20 January 6th insurrectionists called the J6 Prison Choir sing the Star Spangled Banner. Reports say the choir recorded it over a jailhouse, a jailhouse phone. And no, I'm not making this up. It's really happened. Take a listen. You see how the little hashtag J6PC is so cool. Unlike his most previous commercial venture, you remember those digital trading cards of him dressing up as an astronaut and an extra from the show Yellowstone, which seemed to solely benefit himself. Forbes reports that any profits from this chart topper will supposedly benefit the families of people imprisoned before attacking the Capitol on January 6th. Yeah, let's see if they ever get that money. 
So, you know, not to the actual victims of January 6th, including the countless police officers injured by Trump supporters, some of whom are maybe in the choir, but for the families of those who perpetrated the attack. I guess it's not too surprising, given that on the day of the attack, Trump told some of those very same people that they were loved and very special. I'm also sure Trump has found a way to get his piece of the action, too. Nominations for the 2023 Grammys will be announced on November 15th. And something tells me if Trump's name is not mentioned, he will surely claim that the process was rigged because this song, this song, like himself, is surely a winner. Up next, as we prepare to mark the 58th anniversary of Bloody Sunday in Selma, Alabama, we'll talk with 1619 Project creator Nicole Hannah-Jones and readout blog writer Jahan Jones about the right's newest push to normalize racism and misogyny. We're back after this. This weekend is the 58th annual Selma Bridge Crossing Jubilee, commemorating a violent turning point in Black Americans' fight for voting rights. Bloody Sunday was when civil rights marchers were brutally attacked by police officers on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, marching from Selma to Montgomery. Among those attacked, young organizer John Lewis, who was nearly beaten to death and made securing voting rights his life's work. President Biden will attend this year's anniversary at that bridge, named after a Confederate general and leader in the Alabama Ku Klux Klan. Presumably, Alabama school children cannot learn about any of that, since Alabama's Board of Education has banned the right-wing boogeyman critical race theory, restricting, quote, concepts that impute fault, blame, a tendency to oppress others, or the need to feel guilt or anguish for two reasons solely because of their race or sex. That sentence should prohibit Alabama schools from teaching one of the most influential novels of all time, set in Alabama, Harper Lee's classic To Kill a Mockingbird, already one of the most banned books long before the latest push to erase the 20th century. The critical race theory ban has impacted Alabama Black History Month education. Tuscaloosa students staged a walkout after they said they were told to focus more on current events and less on old stuff before 1970. And Alabama Republicans resurrected a bill banning divisive concepts, teaching that certain groups are inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive, whether consciously or subconsciously. They've also taken particular aim at the 1619 Project, which puts slavery into its ongoing and its ongoing legacy at the center of America's historic narrative. Here is Senator Tommy Tuberville at CPAC this week. Today, they're being indoctrinated in education. Uh, All this woke uh, transgender athletes, uh, CRT, 1619. uh, We don't teach reading, writing and arithmetic anymore. Uh, You know, half the kids in this country, when they graduate, think about this, half the kids in this country, when they graduate, can't read their diploma. So first of all, that's not true, but joining me now is Nicole Hedda-Jones, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for the New York Times Magazine and creator of the 1619 Project, and Jahan Jones, our very own writer for the Readout blog. And Nicole, first of all, uh, somebody on Twitter tweeted that they would pay to see Tommy Tuberville take the SAT live on camera, as would I. Quite a bit of money. Um, because the, the, the thing that he said is the thing that you keep hearing that we, we have to ban this thing they've made up that they say is critical race theory that isn't because kids aren't learning to read and write, which is literally what they're learning. And they're saying that if I, as a parent, want my child to read the 1619 project or to learn the real history of black people in this country, they can stop my child from reading it. That's how I understand it. How do you understand these bans? 
Yeah. So, so let's be clear that they are at once arguing two completely contradictory things, which is that we have to ban books, but students can't read books anyway. So <laughs> you really wouldn't have to ban the books if students are graduating and can't even read their diploma, because what are they going to do with these books in the first place? Right. So we know that this isn't about uh, honesty. This isn't about an actual concern that the 1619 Project, critical race theory, and, and you just saw the catch all of every every um, kind of uh conservative boogeyman you could think of, trans athletes, that all of those things are just uh, part of this propaganda campaign. Um, no educators are teaching any of those concepts that these bills seek to ban, but the bills are so broad and vague that, as we know, uh, just regular books about Black people through history are being pulled off of shelves. I mean, they're pulling off books about Dr. King. Let me play a little bit from the 1619 Project documentary series, which is brilliant. Um, my husband and I watched it together. We binged it all once uh, it was all up, uh, posted on Hulu. But let me just play a little piece of it. Don Moore issued that Emancipation Proclamation November 1775. And that Emancipation Proclamation infuriated white Southerners because this building is supposed to symbolize white rule over blacks. Mm -hmm. And now the guy inhabiting that building has turned things upside down and is leading blacks against whites. This is just historical fact. So why why do we have so much pushback? Yeah, it astonishes me as well because it just seems so obvious that both economically and politically enslaved people were at the center of the story. Uh, you know, my theory, my working theory, Nicole, is that it is the 1619 Project that they really are afraid of, that all the other books are falling victim to the success of the work that you did, and that they've now tied everything into the 1619 Project, because that's what they fear, that people will learn the just very basic real history of how the 1776 revolution happened and why. Why do you suppose people are so f afraid to find out that, yeah, the founders of this country were slaveholders and wanted to keep slaves and didn't want to pay taxes on them to England. Like, why is that so frightening to people, do you think? Well, one, I love that you showed that clip because, of course, uh, so much of the effort to discredit the project is um, arguing that I somehow just made up the uh, role of slavery in the American Revolution. And yet here is this uh, very laureled, award-winning historian uh, making that argument. Um, so now they're just like, well, that historian doesn't know what he's talking about. And at first it was, I'm not a historian, so I don't know what I'm talking about. So I just love that you showed that clip because the historical record is clear. But what we know, Joy, is that so much of how we want to see our country is based on a mythology, right, of American exceptionalism, that we're founded on these ideas of freedom. And so if you grapple with Black people, then you have to grapple with the fact that we are founded on a grave hypocrisy. So as I said on Twitter this week, right, Black people are the most inconvenient people to this narrative of America uh, that conservatives want us to believe in. Because how do you explain us? The only reason we're here is because the man who wrote the Declaration, the father of the Constitution, the man who um, drafted the Bill of Rights, we're all enslavers. And um, what they're basically arguing is that if children learn the true history of their country, they might think our country is racist. Um, that's not an argument, right? Uh, the argument yeah. isn't about teaching our children the truth. It's about teaching them a history uh, that protects power and uh, all of the hierarchies that our country was founded upon.
Yeah. Let, let me bring you in here, John, because I, there's a thing you did that I love. So you created this basically a banned books archive on our uh, on our readout blog. Talk about what you did, uh, some of the, the, the works that you included um, and, and, the, and this wonderful thing that you've created. Yes, yes. Well, thank you for having me on, Joy. It feels like I'm at home. And Nicole, it's great to be with you as well. Um, the conceit of this project was pretty simple. I don't think we should trust or appreciate uh, uh, Ron DeSantis or really any right-wing book banners uh, intellect, much less their morals. And so when they give us rather conveniently a list of all the Black authors they think we should not read, uh, what better to do than the exact opposite? And what does that look like? It means probing these authors' works with more depth than any of these Republicans would allow uh, if they had a say, and very fortunately, they do not in this case. Um, so, yeah. uh, for example, I write about James Baldwin, his 1979 article for the New York Times about Black English and the efforts to malign uh, Black language. Those conversations, of course, are pertinent today because Republicans are attacking, uh, you know, terms like woke and critical race theory. I talk about Lorraine Hansberry, her 1964 discussion with uh, white liberals, where she explains how she came to embrace her leftist viewpoints. And she tells the story of her father, who was a Republican, buying wholly into the American dream and not being given his due and uh, not being uh, given his, an adequate return on his investment. And I also cover, you know, uh, Nicole's work. Prior to the 1619 Project, I I focus on specifically her uh, reporting on Michael Brown's uh, school district and the ways it was neglected. And I think that's important because it really establishes it. Well, that uh, history established Nicole as an expert on the inner workings of American schools, such that before you even get to the 1619 project being used in school curriculum, you have uh, Nicole really telling us what uh, what it is and what it isn't with regard to the American education system. And so she knows uh, better than really any of the people trying to malign her that the issues with American schools are not black authors on bookshelves, but actually neglect and disinvestment. And tell us where we can see it, because this is it's got its own landing page coming up. So tell us, John, where we can find these work, yes. your work. Yes, yeah, so you, you can find it on msnbc.com. It's currently in its uh, first iteration, but we will be taking it uh, in a more uh, audio-visual direction going forward. So that's uh, very exciting. And it's called Black History Uncensored. I'm going to give you the last word. I'm going to give it's called Black History Uncensored. I'm going to give you the last word on this, Nicole. Um, to me, what these uh, governors, et cetera, have done. They've made people want these books more. And I think that's the point Jahan just made as well. They've made people crave these books more. Absolutely. Uh, the New York Times um, 1619 Project is back on the New York Times bestseller list. It's been on there for the last three months. Um, the more they keep talking about this dangerous uh, book and all of these dangerous books, the more people want to read them and find out for themselves. You know, we have the First Amendment to the Constitution for a reason. It's because for all of their problems, our founders actually understood that you cannot have a democracy in a free country without um, freedom of the press and freedom of government intervention, determining what type of ideas we can have access to. Amen. And so most Amen. Americans are very opposed to that idea. And uh, we don't live in a world where you can stop us from reading the things that we want to read anymore. Amen. We think what we want to think. We're going to read what we want to read. Good luck. Uh, what governor of Florida, DeSantis. Do you think you can do that nationally too? You can. Nicole Hannah-Jones, thank you, my friend. I appreciate you. And Jahan is staying with us. We're not letting him go because you know what's coming next. Two on the week is straight ahead. Don't miss it.
Well, we made it to the end of another week. Thank you, Jesus. Which means it's time to play our favorite game. Back with me is family member Jahan Jones. Jahan, who won the week? Joy, uh, as a hip-hop fanatic, I couldn't pick anyone but the group De La Soul, whose songs were just added to streaming services today uh, after a years-long battle with their record label. So if people grow tired of listening to Ben Carson rap songs by <laughs> aspiring mogul, uh, I invite them to listen to some Me, Myself, and I. Um, it's just me, myself, and I. I'm telling you, De La Soul and Tribe got me through freshman year of college. That was Those were my groups. Love them, love them. And leaders of the new school also. Boom. Really good choice. Okay, my choice is going to be a little more political. It is Michaela Cavanaugh. You saw her on with Rachel Maddow earlier this week. She is the state senator who has vowed to filibuster everything. Not one or two things, but everything. She says she has nothing but time. She's going to sit there and make them sit. Let, let's play her. Let's play her. She said until they stop these crazy transgender bans. Take this legislature collectively decides that legislating hate against children is our priority, then I am going to make it painful, painful for everyone. I have nothing, nothing but time. And I am going to use all of it. She says she got time. Jahan Jones, she, she won the week. Jahan Jones and De La Soul, thank you very much. Appreciate you. And that is tonight's readout. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC.